Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to cover two clauses in the section on the Holy Spirit and wrap up our section on the Holy Spirit. Um, last time we covered, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Today we are going to talk about uh, the procession of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, or in the Western tradition, uh, the Father and the Son, and then who was who with the Father and Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Um, I spent a good amount of time debating how much I was going to include into this episode because of the filioque clause and the debate surrounding that. And so this is what I came up with. I'm sorry if this isn't satisfactory. You can find articles till the cows come home on this. Um... Yeah, one of them is one of my favorites is by Nick Needham. If you look up Nick Needham in the Filioque, his article is really good in enlightening and summarizing the history. So this this section, uh, so we're going to begin with who proceeds from the Father, and then in brackets, sometimes you'll see and the Son for the Western tradition, or sometimes you'll see and the Son um, assumed into the creed. And this section of the creed would be a place of major contention between the Eastern and Western Church. Uh, so to begin this discussion, we really just have to point back to the eternal generation of the Son that we spoke about before, right? So the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and here we're talking about the personal property of the Holy Spirit, and that is called procession. The designation of a distinct term was not only pulled from the text itself, which is what uh, with some of the contention with the Latin churches, they didn't have the the different terminology that the Eastern Church had at their disposal. And this idea of procession from the Father is explicitly mentioned in John fifteen twenty six. So reading that, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So you have the Son. Sending the Holy Spirit from the Father, who is said to have proceeded from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So it is the Spirit's procession from the Father that distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and Son in the same way that eternal generation is the personal property that distinguishes the Father from the Spirit. So we find in the original Creed of 381 that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. And of course, it doesn't say alone, but... It's who proceeds from the Father. While the point of contention would be the addition of what is called the filioque clause, which is a Latin clause that means and the Son. And that would be inserted in the Western and Latin tradition. This issue really goes beyond 381. And so we're just going to briefly summarize it. That was where I landed. We're, we're focusing on the context of 381. I've avoided going to Chalcedon. So why go further than Chalcedon to this issue, you know? Um, so we'll at least summarize it so you can kind of understand what's going on. So like we said, the original Creed of 381 said that the Holy Spirit originally proceeded from the Father. Uh, and this again relates to the Holy Spirit's personal property or his eternal distinction within the Trinity, similar to the properties of the Son and the Father having been begotten and unbegotten. But in Spain, local congregations added the filioque clause uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and this was really a means of apologetics against Arianism. The idea was that without this addition, the Son was not equal to the Father in power because he does not have all that the Father has. 
So it became commonplace in the West to affirm that the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in order to protect the full deity of the Son, at least in the Western mind. In 1014, the Bishop of Rome inserted it officially into the Creed and then would make it dogma in 1215. Now, the East objected to this, and the objections were twofold, one on ecclesiastical grounds and one on theological grounds. To the ecclesiastical grounds for the East, the insertion of this clause into an ecumenical creed required an ecumenical council. It was essentially a breach of authority of the Bishop of Rome or the Pope to insert this tradition into a universal creed without a council. So basically the Pope, um, the Pope overstepped his authority as a patriarch. He basically assumed authority over the others. Now the objection on theological grounds, the Eastern writers were concerned that the filioque compromised the monarchy of the father by including the son as a source of the Holy spirit. For the East, the Son receives and manifests the Spirit, but is not the source of the Spirit. Only the Father is the source of both the Son and the Holy Spirit. For the East, this clause confuses the Father and the Son by giving them the same property of spirating or sending the Spirit. Now, to that, what's, what's interesting is that this idea, this, the monarchy of the Father, we've talked about this briefly, is the idea that the Father is the source, principle, or cause of the Holy Spirit and the Son, right? We just said that with the East. And the emphasis of the unity of the Trinity in the Eastern churches tended to focus upon the person of the Father first and foremost, the Father being the grounds for the unity of the Trinity. There is a myth that the West denied this understanding, but in truth, the West affirmed it. Even Augustine affirmed it. The Father is the principal source, but the West tended to put an emphasis on the essence of God being the primary focus of unity. So in short, if I was to summarize it in my own words, the East tended to focus upon the father or the person while the West tended to focus upon the divine essence first. At the same time, it's a myth that the East denies the unity found in the essence. And that isn't quite the case either. Really, it becomes quite difficult because you do kind of find these emphasis leading to the conclusions that one of the other side We'll charge them with. For example, I read a Catholic author the other day who who did place the monarchy in the essence, not in the person of the Father, uh, which is one of the concerns of the East at this time. Regardless, in the West, we tend to assume the filioque clause. If you read the Athanasian Creed from the fifth century on the Holy Spirit, it's in, it's included, and it's worth noting here that Western Christians. There are Western Christians who hold to both positions. There are some that reject the filioque clause, and there are some that hold to it. Um, it is argued that the East's emphasis upon the Father, the person, leads to tritheism, yet this is difficult to substantiate because East has a stress upon the shared nature and perichoresis. And on the flip side of that, it's argued that the Western focus upon the divine unity of the essence of God leads to modalism and creates a fourth member of the Trinity that is the essence who binds the, the the Godhead together. Now, there are Western theologians who agree with the filioque in some sense, but not necessarily in the way it's placed into the creed. And the reason why is because 
Whenever it's placed in the creed the way it is, it implies that there's two sources for the Holy Spirit. While the West even noted that it is the Holy Spirit who comes through the Son who proceeds from the Father. The single source of the Father is still retained, but the clause in itself blurs that distinction between the Father and the Son as the Son still has a relationship with the Spirit akin to the Father. Uh, so Lethem, in his book, The Holy Trinity, as an additional point to the discussion, he says there appears to be some evidence of a tendency to subordinate the Holy Spirit if the filioque clause is needed to support the consubstantiality of the Son. If the deity of the Son requires him to be spirating source of the Holy Spirit, where does that leave the Spirit who is the source of no other hypostasis? So essentially, if the Son needs to spirate the Holy Spirit in order to be fully equal with the Father, then the Holy Spirit is logically not equal to the Father and Son because there is no source from the Holy Spirit. He, he doesn't spirate, generate, etc. And so that's an interesting point, which I believe that Lethen comes out holding on to the filioque. But he basically argues the same thing that um, I'm kind of leading to, that really it's, it's really a matter of semantics and theologically at the root of it, both sides agree that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. And that a lot of the discussion got muddied in uh, rhetoric. Uh, so whenever we talk about this in terms of the, the clause itself, th there's good points on both sides. And so that's where, again, we, we concede what has been understood by both sides that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. And this articulation is one that is acceptable to the East, uh, though many still object to the filioque clause itself. Uh, especially on ecclesiastical grounds, because the Pope overreaching and uh, assuming authority over other Popes and Patriarchs at the time. We must retain the distinction also between the procession of the Holy Spirit and the generation of the Son. Uh, we have to see this as two different personal properties. So what do I think about the inclusion of the filioque? I'll say this. On historical and ecclesiastical grounds, it is my conviction that the creed should remain without the filioque clause. Now, I favor the understanding that the thrust of an ecumenical council, the weight of an ecumenical council, was that this was a formulation of the church as a great unity before any major schisms. And just as well, as one who rejects the papacy, I found no reason to include the unilateral decision of the papacy in the addition and dogma of the filioque clause. Not only... Was this an overreach of that authority? But this overreach appears to be a major turning point for the papal authority in general that would become the point of contention or one point of contention during the Reformation. Now, as for the theological point, I can affirm the Athanasian Creed with the Filioque so much as it is understood as the eternal relation of the origin of the Holy Spirit remains with the Father uh, who is given through the Son. Nick Needham's article, again, has... A lot of great compelling points. Now, when it comes to the general perception of the Trinity, I have come to believe that the focus upon the essence of God as the source of unity nearly creates a fourth person in the Godhead, uh, which encompasses the Trinity and holds them together. So I, I think that that's a valid point. I also think that the charge that the Western church tends to lead into modalism is well documented. And we see that in our culture with the neo-modalist group, the Oneness Pentecostals. And Oneness Pentecostalism 
has actually outnumbered Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons combined. Now, with that all said, I can also see how the Eastern position can allow wiggle room for subordinationism or Arianism. And I can see why that clause was seeking to remedy that. And this is really from a discussion I had with an Arian not too long ago. So I think that, I think that it is difficult to say which one is best. I do think that having the father as the principal source places the Godhead in a place where God is personal. God is not impersonal. We do not interact with an essence or a nature, but we interact with persons. So I think that's important. But I think that the Western emphasis on um, God in of himself for Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God himself, is helpful. I think it helps. Um, so I can see both sides, and it makes it kind of difficult. So at, at the end of the day, I lean towards what would typically be called the Eastern emphasis, and I agree with the Filioque in so much that it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, but I reject the Filioque in this particular creed on historical and ecclesiastical grounds. And uh, Molnar, in his contribution of Two Views of the Doctrine of the Trinity, he, he is a Catholic, but he, he uh, summarizes Athanasius fantastically here. He says, It was and remains a crucial insight of classical Trinitarian theology that the processions within the imminent Trinity are a mystery. We cannot explain how the Son is begotten of the Father or how the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. It is not right, as Athanasius says, to seek how the Word is from God or how He is God's radiance or how God begets or what is the manner of His begetting. Such questions demonstrate our ignorance of God because they mistakenly seek to measure God and his wisdom by our own nature and infirmity. It is better, as Athanasius says, to be silent and believe than to disbelieve on account of perplexity. For he who is perplexed may in some way obtain mercy. In his mind, those who think of the word as external to God clearly were trying to explain the doctrine in their own way and not in faith. For with the explanation given in faith, God's word is proper to him and from him and is not a work, and yet is not like the word of man, or else we must suppose that God to be a man. The element of mystery here was crucial for classic theologians and remains crucial to us today. And I think it's a great, a great thing to remember as we sit here and we all kind of rack our brains over these ideas and uh, the Cappadocians and Athanasius all had that that at the fundamental level. We, we can't really explain how this works. We just recognize it and we have faith despite how perplexing it is for our finite minds. So our biblical support is easier and more difficult than generation of the sun in, in different ways. For the generation of the sun, there's more of a systematic point uh, overall, right, while the doctrine of the Holy Spirit comes from both the understanding that the Holy Spirit is called the breath of God, um, and then also the logical possibility of this doctrine given that we hold to eternal generation, right? So John 15, 26, that we already cited, where we read explicitly that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So we, here we can ascertain the 
the discussion mentioned prior, we read that the spirit proceeds from the father, but that the son sends the spirit, quote, from the father, end quote. The distinction is ultimately in what occurs in redemptive history as Jesus breathes out the spirit upon believers in John 20, 22. Yet, while the Holy Spirit comes through Jesus in this economy, we find that the spirit first proceeds from the father and the son receives the spirit and gives the spirit from the father. So our application is quite simple and it's also a little bit less practical, but it's similar to generation of the son. Essentially, we can maintain the unity of the persons while retaining their differentiation. Again, this rejects heresies such as Arianism and the heresy of the spirit fighters and also modalism. And that's where, again, John 15, 26 through 27 can become problematic for modalism. So let's talk about our next section. Uh, With the Father and the Son, He, that is the Holy Spirit, is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. I'm actually going to utilize Eloski. I think that's how you say his name. It's from We Believe in the Holy Spirit, Volume 4 of Ancient Christian Doctrine. Uh, And he says, The ancient church's worship and glorification of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the clearest witness to its understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the divine economy before such an understanding became clearly written down in the creed. The worship life of the church not only informed the church's theology, it also expressed theology in a way more often caught than taught. And this essentially means that uh, in the way that Christians were doing in life, this worship and glorification of the Holy Spirit is evidently seen. And he, Eloski begins by pointing out to the baptism where the commission of Jesus is to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This formula for baptism would be one of the, the means of validating the validity of baptism, whether or not you were baptized in the name of the triune God. Now, the benediction of Paul in his second letter to Corinthians includes the Spirit in the same breath with the Father and the Son, and the unifying role of the Spirit in the life of the early church and its worship is clearly evident throughout the pages of the New Testament, and of course the post-apostolic documents of the second century. So essentially, this worship and glorification of the Holy Spirit was practically in place, but then only later pinned on paper, essentially, is the argument. So it's really quite simple. It's the same thing as whenever we see Arians, even modern Arians, who would admit that there's a sense in which you worship Jesus, and yet there's only one God who is worshipped. And this was a big point of contention in the early church was Arians were, their practice was contradicting the doctrine. They were, they were worshiping this lower deity, so they said. And you see this with Jehovah's Witnesses before 1956. Jehovah's Witnesses taught that you worshiped Jesus. He deserved worship. After that, uh, which is ironic because those are the founders, and after that, you find that doctrine being rejected as idolatry. And so that inconsistency still shows up in modern Arianism. But um, I digress. Now, this idea that the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets is a little bit easier for us to ascertain in terms of familiarity, because uh, we read that the Holy Spirit is the means by which men spoke the words of God, and you see that in Second Peter one twenty one, right? And this is where we go back to appropriation. So while the Scriptures are the Word of God, and Jesus is the Word of God enfleshed, there is the inseparable operation of God, and the inspiration of Scripture is appropriated to the Holy Spirit. And I believe I explained appropriation 
in the last episode, but we'll just say it again. Appropriation in theology refers to those specific but not exclusive operations of each person of the Trinity. So, for example, while the triune God was involved in the Incarnation, it was only the Son who was incarnate, yet given the inseparable operations of God, the Father planned the Incarnation and the Spirit is by whom the conception occurred. This reveals additionally those personal properties that we've been talking about. The Son is begotten, therefore it was appropriate for the Eternal Son to become the Incarnate Son. Uh, and the appropriation of the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to what we're talking about here, that is Revelation in the Scriptures, is seen in various texts, such as Mark 13, 11, John 20, 22, Luke 1, 41, Matthew 22, 42, and Acts 1, 6. But we should not forget that every work is ultimately a Trinitarian work. So, whenever we focus upon the appropriation of the Holy Spirit in relation to divine revelation, we first find that God communicates to us through His Word, and the Spirit aids the hearers to understand the Scriptures and respond appropriately. From here we have inspiration, the doctrine that leads to the idea that humans were the means by which the Holy Spirit communicated the words of God to us today. Uh, the theory that is most often adopted, uh, which I hold to, is called verbal plenary inspiration, meaning that the authors of the Bible employed and enjoyed their own personalities, perspective, styles, and so forth, yet the Holy Spirit was instrumental in ensuring that the authors wrote exactly what was intended by God. To some level, this is a mystery. We most famously get this notion from the text of Peter, already cited, but also 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul coins a term, uh, theonostos, that is God-breathed, in relation to the scriptures. Of course, um, some translation will actually translate this term as inspiration. And this text includes that all scripture is God-breathed, and this means that ultimately the scriptures are truthful logically. Now, whenever we think about our interaction with the scriptures, we often conflate interpretation and illumination, which we shouldn't. Uh, we must distinguish them, even though both deal with understanding scripture in some sense. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit, where he enlightens readers when they are engaging with the word of God. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit interprets scripture for us and gives us the meaning of the text but rather he moves us to understand and ascertain the information of Scripture in a way that is beyond mere intellectual assent. This leads to real application and conviction and movement. One could summarize illumination by saying that illumination is the Holy Spirit giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to comprehend the truths found in Holy Scriptures. So what's our application? Our application is uh, really just keeping in mind as we wrap up this section on the Holy Spirit, that the Christian life is Trinitarian through and through. All three persons are involved in creation, the incarnation, and the resurrection. And you see this indicated uh, in Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 3.18, John 2.19, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Genesis 1.1-2, 1, 1 John 1.1-3, 1, 1 and John 3.6-16. The gospel is Trinitarian. To gain access to the throne of grace is to come to the Father by believing in His only begotten Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration to new life, a work of the Holy Spirit, is ultimately being united to the Son who gives us access to the Father's throne. We read this in Ephesians 2.18. For through Him, that is Christ, we have both access in one Spirit to the Father. 
in Ephesians 2.22. In him, that is Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God, the Father, by the Spirit. The Christian life is Trinitarian. Sanctification, prayer, and worship are all Trinitarian. We are born of the Spirit, united to Christ, adopted as children. By the Spirit and the Word, we live as a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12.1-2, Galatians 5.17. In abiding union with Christ, we are producing fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit unto the glory of the Father, 2 Peter 1, 3-11, and John 15, 11. Whenever we pray, we pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, as children of God, in adoption by the Spirit, through the Son, as to the Father, in Ephesians 2, 18, Matthew 6, 9, Romans 8, 14-17, and 8, 29. And of course, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And you read that in Philippians 3, 3. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Romans 6, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Christianity is fundamentally Trinitarian. Trinitarianism is essential to be considered a Christian. This is the ecumenical confession of the historic church. As Athanasius would say, the Trinity is the heart of the Christian faith.